hello and a very warm welcome uh, to all of you for coming on this uh, very nice uh, London night. Uh, it's a great pleasure to uh, chair this event. My name is uh, Eric Neumeyer. I'm with the uh, Department of Geography and Environment. And it is a pleasure indeed to chair this event. Uh, Gabor uh, Steingart will be our speaker tonight. Um, he is... Uh, well, let's say it, promoting his book. He will be signing uh, his book, which you can uh, buy uh, outside. Uh, there are plenty of uh, copies uh, there. And I should also mention that uh, this event is uh, sponsored in part by the uh, German society, and thanks uh, a lot to them for doing so. Uh, I will not introduce the speaker tonight because I have someone who will do that for me, uh, let me briefly introduce uh, him. Uh, Wolfgang uh, Novak uh, is his name. He is the uh, spokesperson of the executive board of the Alfred Herrhausen Society, the international forum of the uh, Deutsche Bank. He um, has been a politician uh, in the past. He's been a state secretary, and he's also made um, great contributions to uh, what many of you will have heard about the, the, the third way, this uh, idea that uh, Anthony Giddens and others and uh, Tony Blair and others have uh, 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 promoted a, sort of a new social democratic uh, model, which sort of gives you a hint that he is a member of the social democratic um, party. I don't want to say uh, much more. He is going to introduce Gabor Steingart. Gabor will speak for about 30, 35 minutes, and then we ha will have uh, a, a question and answer session. Unfortunately, not too long. They have to leave a quarter uh, to eight, but we will have some opportunity uh, for question and answers. So please join me in a warm welcome to uh, both of them. Thank you very much. I know Gaba for a long time, uh, since the beginning of my career, his career began. Uh, he is senior correspondent of Der Spiegel in Washington, and he was chief of the bureau in Berlin, which is the most important job the Spiegel has to offer. Well, when I was in government, I have learned something which governments don't like. He was an independent journalist. You couldn't get him into one camp or the other. Therefore, his what I like on him, he's unpredictable. You never know what he is presenting, and this makes him an excellent journalist, but a very difficult one for those who want him to agree with you. Well, I followed the book. This is not the first book. Uh, Gabor has won, written other books, and he has won the very famous Helmut Schmidt Award in Germany for economic journalism. And to be awarded by Helmut Schmidt is, I think, like a lordship in Britain. And um, it's a very important prize he got um, earlier this year. And uh, his book is part of a series of books. Uh, you remember Farid Zakaria, who has been here, Parak Karma, uh, Bill Emmett. These are all books about a, a, a multipolar world, how, what, what the new American presidency has to, administration has to do in, with a changing world. But now we are all waiting for something to happen. And now they find a different world, and a different, they have the, um, the, the, the rise of the rest, as Zakaria is saying, and how to face the challenges of a new world. And everybody is thinking about it, and the most recent thinker is the Russian President Medvedev. And when he came to Germany, he was giving an answer also to uh, Gabor Steinbach's book, and he was using uh, one... Uh, uh, vocabulary out of the German doomsday vocabulary. This is called Schicksalsgemeinschaft. I would not like to translate this because Schicksalsgemeinschaft is really something very strong. And it has everything like doomsday, Wagner opera. It's all in this world uh, together. And he thinks that Europe's problems in the world can only be solved when Europe and the Russian Federation build a sort of Schicksalsgemeinschaft it's a very friendly translation, organic unity, but this is not that. Schicksalsgemeinschaft, and that these two, the Russian Federation and Europe, this is the answer to the problems of the world, and they should work together and build a unity. I think 
in the war for wealth, the true story of globalization and how the Western society can survive, Gaber Steingart will have a different answer than his recent critic, the Russian president. Welcome now, Gabor, and we are all looking forward to seeing how you disagree with Medvedev. Thank you very much. So, thank you, Wolfgang Novak, for the introduction. Thank you for coming, all of you. A warm welcome. It's not only a great pleasure to be here, it's only also a great honor to be here at the London School of Economics. I think it's a small step for the school to have me here, but it's a great step for me. <laughs> so thank you for having me here. Uh, directly coming from the U.S., I can tell you that the buzzword of the season is change. Everybody is selling it, big portions of change right now. You can buy it, enriched with hope. Then it comes from a former community organizer called Barack Obama. Or it's loaded with experience. Then it will be offered by a war veteran called John McCain. I know your politicians in London are not living behind the moon. They also move their bodies at the new rhythm of our times. At his first day on Downing Street, Number 10, your new prime minister, who looks all the time a little bit sad, try to be fancy. Now let the work of change begin, begin, he said. And David Cameron is also crying crazy for change. He has started to organize change, not only to change his party, but also I've seen it in the papers, to change his haircut. Graduation, that's the way it works in, in PR politics. A real change, and that's what I'm here to talk about with you and to have a discussion with you. Real change needs more than a politician, needs more than PR. For example, I think you and me. It's time to listen in all the political and economic debate, not to another strategist or pollster, but to a great scientist, the Nobel laureate Ivan Petrovich Pavlov from St. Petersburg in Russia. I'm sure most of you will know Mr. Pavlov. By experimenting with dogs, he discovered a long time ago the animals have a natural reflex. He placed food in front of them. Like a push of a button, they start salivating. Pavlov combined then two stimuli, food and the sound of a bell, until the dogs understand the connection. The bell rang, and the dog started salivating. Then Pavlov had done a thing which, which disturbed the dogs. He shortened the reflex chain by removing the food. But the dogs continued to salivate after the bell tone, even when food no longer followed. We learned an important lesson, that an experience once stored in memory becomes stronger than reality. And the bad message for you and me is, unfortunately, we are not doing much better than the dogs. Our political reflexes are very, very similar. Whether we call ourselves progressives, liberals, conservatives, independents, we have one thing in common. Our political reflex change is often ill-conditioned. Now this lecture becomes similar to a session with your doctor, I know this. You are ill, that's the bad message, but the hopeful message is you are ill but not hopeless ill. So let's face reality and start with our wrong ill conditioning. First, ill conditioning, we are trained to recognize threats when they look like Stalin and Hitler. We need military parades, we need loud voices, we need an aggressive tone in the political debate to recognize that there is somebody who could mean a threat to us, who could be an enemy. Our radar system, I see a lot of young people here, but also you have it in your genetic code, even if you're not, as me, part of World War II generation, but our radar system was built, designed, and installed during Second World War and the Cold War, which followed after the Second World War. It has shaped our worldview, our ability to recognize good and evil. That's 
I believe, by Bush and Cheney and Rumsfeld and all these guys are so happy that they have Ahmadinejad, the president of the Iran. He looks and behaves like we expect an enemy has to look and has to behave. I'm sure our radar system is outdated. The real threats today, and we should think about it, could be maybe look completely different. Maybe the today's threat are smiling, not shooting, not shouting. The Chinese elite, for example, would never write a, an aggressive book like Hitler's Mein Kampf. They would never discuss even with us what is their real goal. Also, the Indians would never say that some other nation should be whipped off the map. That's not their tone. That's not their way of discussing. But also, the new world could mean and could bring a lot of threats for the Western societies. Don't get me wrong. I think terrorism is a real thing, and we have to protect ourselves. But I think our fears have been spun out of proportion. The Taliban consists of military dwarfs and political pygmies. A country like Iran, for example, with a gross domestic product like Connecticut in the U.S., in the military budget as big as Sweden, doesn't deserve the attention of the entire Western public and its governments. In our days, world history isn't being written in Afghanistan, in Baghdad or Tehran. But I believe history is written in Shanghai, in Singapore, in New Delhi, in Beijing. The defining word confronting our generation is not terror, but globalization. It is the rise of India and China, not the goings-on in the mountains of Pakistan, where the Stone Age warriors are fighting against the Western army that will leave their imprint in this area. The war for wealth, a bitter struggle of a share of influence, and the related struggle of a political and cultural dominance in the tomorrow's world are the real conflicts of our today, of our days. I believe the war on terror has overblown the man in the White House and his strong supporters in Downing Street Number 10 have set the wrong priorities and the public, deliberately or not, is being kept in the dark over the true changes of our time. Either the U.S. president, not the prime minister of this country, not of my country, have spoken clearly about the great shift of power and wealth we are facing in these days. After two world wars, the center of the world has shifted from Europe to America, and now it is shifting once again, this time toward Asia. A new topography of power is taking shape. I'm sure that our future looks maybe different to our present. It's not an easy continuation of our present. You can see it on a lot of numbers, only two numbers of this. The European share of the global market, three times the size of China's and India's combined before World War I, will shrink to only 15% of the economic power of these two countries within the next two decades. The U.S. share of global exports, for example, has already been cut in half since my lifetime, since 1960. For the Asians, they are not only looking to control the low-wage labor market. That was only the beginning. We are right now in the early morning of the process, which we normally called globalization. Their goal is dominance, not being part of a silent partnership. They want to lead instead to follow. And let us see very clearly. I understand their goal. It's the right one, the perfect one, but for them. Second fallacy, our second wrong ill conditioning. We believe free trade is good for everybody in every country at any time. Somebody cries free trade, and also in this country, in the U.S. and in Germany, and here both of your major political parties starts dreaming of peace and prosperity. The real heroes of our time, Cameron cried in Davos at the beginning of this year, will be those who held their nerves and stood up for free trade. And indeed, the unrestricted exchange of goods had delivered peace and prosperity for decades for the Western world. The rise of our world was strongly connected to the free trade philosophy. It worked well also in the early days 
of our today's globalization, when nearly 500 million employees, I'm not talking about kids and grandma, 500 million employees in the Western countries, Australia, Canada, US, Great Britain, and the rest of Western Europe, were competing against each other. But we were competing under similar conditions. We were all members in the democratic capitalistic club. It was a competition between companies, not a competition between nations. The experts call it, it was a level playing field. The terms of trade were, I'm not talking about fair or unfair. That's not important in international geostrategic political um, science. Uh, the terms of trade at that time were to our interest. That was the difference between our today's terms of, of trade. This world was a flat world indeed. Those times were the glory days of ordinary workers. You remember that was a time when Great Britain also delivers great cars to the rest of the world, when British steel was an economic powerhouse. That was a time when a new, <laughs> a magic world uh, came to our mind, middle class. A real magic world, a huge promise for millions of households of people, of ordinary people, to climb up the social ladder to find their life with more wealth and more prosperity in the future. That was the time when we all became free traders. But meanwhile, the unthinkable has happened. The flat world was crushed. China, India, most of the Eastern European countries decided nearly overnight to join our labor market. It was a great decision for them but it had a far-reaching impact on average people in the West. Still, since their entrance into the world labor market, we began to face what I call an inflation of laborers, an inflation of workers. 500 million employees, you remember, before in the Western countries, and now an additional 1.5 billion workers joined during only a decade the world labor market. So it's not only doubled, it's four times more workers. And there's not so much capital. That's the reason why the capitalists and people who invest in the stock market are doing much better than ordinary workers during this process. The terms of trade have changed during this time, and they extremely have changed for, let me say, one-third of our workforces. The new reality since that entrance of these countries into the world labor market. Free trade brings prosperity to a lot of people and others are getting hurt. Modern globalization is not a force for good or for bad. It's both. Unfortunately, it's not a unifying force, but an extremely divisive one. In the US, you can study it right now. The, the hot button issue in this election is the healthcare system. You have 47 million people uninsured in the US. Um, Okay, where does these people come from? 47 million in the U.S. Nine million are, have joined the ranks of the uninsured during the Bush years, and it has nothing to do with Bush. The business circle was very good in the U.S. There's a growth rate between 3 and 5% during this period. But nine million additional people joined the rank of the uninsured. Where does these people come from? A lot of people think, okay, these are immigrants, undocumented workers, people from the inner cities of Chicago and wherever. No, these are middle-class people coming from multinational companies, and these multinational companies have reacted on our today's globalization and had cut back the health care plans. So most of the uninsured people which joined the ranks of the uninsured during the last decade coming from the middle class. And that's why we have a huge political problem in all our middle-class society, because it's not a problem of only some people. I'm talking about an all-Western problem. The dollar is weak. There will be effect at the end all of our economies. But why the dollar is weak? Because the economy is weak. Why is the economy weak? Because the growth rate during all the Bush years was driven by consumer spending. But the rise in consumer spending was not driven by a rise of salary. It was driven by the rise of heavy lending. The biggest exporter of the world, the U.S., became the biggest importer during my lifetime, 
during half of my lifetime. During the last 20 years, the biggest lender of money became the biggest borrower of money. Their business model is not sustainable. Look at your country. You have lost most of your industrial foundation since that shift. Your trade balance, the same as in the U.S., is written in deep red ink. No chance to get out. The so-called service industry has left an empty space in your trade balance. You export a lot of services, but not enough. You have done much better uh, with all the old jobs, the old industries, and maybe we need to put them all together. Inequality also in this country is on the rise. The Blair government and now the Gordon Brown government have not bring the prosperity to the, to the little guys. If you look at all the parameter of, of inequality in a society, it looks much worse now than at the end of Maggie Thatcher. The London city, of course, is a shining city upon the hill, but millions of your fellow countrymen are living down in the Shetty Valley, and most of them will stay there forever. If we all were dogs, we would start wondering at that point about our free trade beliefs. The bell is ringing and ringing during the election campaign louder than before, but where is the beef? Our third, ill-conditioning. A market economy in the Western style is the role model for everybody. The invisible hand of the market, Adam Smith, you know him very well, will shape the world. If I would try to be polite, I would say that's wishful thinking, but I'm not here to be polite. This sentence is simply wrong in our time. The emerging powers are following not Adam Smith. They're following their own stars, and they're working with a lot of success with both hands the invisible hand of the market, and the iron fist of their governments. Let's have a closer look what I mean by this. Let's have a look, for example, at my tie, at this microphone, glass of water. All the products are made of three things. First of all, raw material, cotton, plastic, oil, maybe glass, something like this, the raw material. You can buy it at every corner in the world, world market. Second, Ingredient of every product, the knowledge, how to combine water, oil, plastic, I hope cotton, maybe satin, something more better cotton stuff, how to combine it, um, that it will be a tie, a microphone, a glass of water, something like this. So the knowledge, it's about knowledge, raw material knowledge. The knowledge to produce a tie, a microphone, a glass, also, this word and all the other stuff is not so difficult. You can buy the knowledge also at every corner. Most of our products are commodities right now. Um, only maybe 5% of the, the high-end products uh, are difficult to get. So that's not the difference, knowledge and raw material. But the third component of every product makes the difference. What are the conditions under which a society means a government, means a parliament, means you and me, allows the producers of tight glass water microphones to bring together raw material and knowledge. And these conditions, this could be laws, trade agreements, that could be thousands of little details about job security, about environmental protection, about simple things, separate restrooms for men and women, about a lot of things which have to do with education, it's all about rules and regulation. Our today's competition, and that's important to understand, is not about raw material, not about knowledge. India and China so far have invented nothing. We are not looking on, on this stage, looking for a technology-driven globalization process. No, this process right now is driven by the undermining of Western values the undermining of our rules and regulations. So, if we look at their world and our world, again, I don't want to blame them, but we have to see the difference between our competition, uh, between the 500 million workers and the additional 
1.5 billion workers. And um, let me be very clear at that time. Uh, we send our kids to school, not down the coal mine. We try to protect our nature, not to pollute it. Um, a guy with another opinion like me and lots of you, we put on screen, on a radio show, on a discussion on university, not into prison. So we are talking about moral standards, about values. We are talking about all the things which allows producers to produce what they are producing. Today, we can buy every product in two versions. We can buy a washing machine made by Whirlpool, General Electric, Miele, Germany. I don't know whether you have a producer of washing machines right now in, in your country, but all these products include a piece, for example, of the welfare state, of our values. Or we can buy a Chinese brand, then it comes directly from the Yangtze Delta, and has no built-in welfare state. If we order a car that comes from Detroit or Volkswagen, maybe from British Leland, from all the car producers in the West, inside all these cars you find a big package of the welfare state, of health insurances, of unemployment insurances, a lot of values which at the end of the bill are costs. For example, Ford car produced by Ford, also in the rough capitalism of the U.S., has an additional cost of $1.6,000 for each car for all the social benefits. If you drive to the next dealer, Hyundai, coming from Korea, you can have the same car without this package. That's what we have to understand about our today's competition, that we are competing against a different set of rules and regulation. Governments in this country, but also in our countries, play a dominant role to shape the conditions of the production process. The exchange rate in China, another issue, is fixed, not flexible, and it's good for them. Trade unions are forbidden. It makes the cost of labor low in their country. Safety standards are lower than low in all these countries we are talking about. And even India, a lot of people think India is a market economy. Yes, parts of India are a market economy, but the whole country follows, as you know, a five-year plan since decades. Often political action in these countries is only lip service. For example, the ban of child labor is part of legislation in India, but it's not part of their everyday reality. Intellectual property rights in China are not worth the paper they are written on. Yes, we can be heroes like David Cameron defending our great beliefs and all this stuff and also our great history. But for me, it's not brave. It is naive and maybe also stupid. We should understand in a global economy where the big players are using the iron fist of government, there's no such thing as free markets. We should find a smarter response. Fourth fallacy, or fourth wrong, ill-conditioning. The natural progression for a developed economy is to move from an industry-based to a service-based economy. That's the way it works. That's what we have learned at university, and that's what many of us believe. Seen in the light of this theory, the disappearance of industrial jobs is even a good sign because it clears the way for the new economy. Happy farewell to the blue-collar worker. The new world looks like London City and Silicon Valley. I say, wait a minute. What we see outside maybe is not the end of the industrial age, but merely a shift of industrial work to Asia. All over the world, there are more people doing industrial jobs than ever before. Today, there are 600 million blue-collar workers worldwide. Even in India, most of the new jobs are in the industrial sector, not in the service industry. We are living maybe at the beginning of the second industrial age, so blue-collar 2.0. Only the Western countries, only our countries, are losing these kind of jobs. Germany has lost nearly 30%, France nearly 20% of these jobs since the beginning of the 90s. 
In the United States, the economy has lost more than a quarter of these industrial jobs since the late 60s. And Great Britain, you know this better than me, more than half of the blue-collar workers since Maggie Thatcher came to power. Only 10% of your workforce right now are working in a factory. Many economists continue to defend the old theory that the Indians and the Chinese are merely going through the same industrial age Western societies have already put behind them. But this way of thinking fails to explain today's development in these countries because they are smarter. They are building their industrial and service sectors at the same time. Clearly, we are experiencing not a post-industrial age worldwide, but a series of simultaneous developments for which we have not been prepared. Perhaps the sector, the service sector economy, is simply a part of the so-called old industrial society. Service jobs are at the end of the production chain, not an independent unit. Look at the pilot. He flies an airplane. And the airplane is one of the most advanced industrial products. Also, the waiter in the restaurant serves meals made by the food industry. So let's put it in the terms of the family to make much clearer what I mean. Maybe the service jobs are not the sons and daughters of the industrial father, but simply his brothers and sisters. This sounds banal, but it has serious consequences for our political behavior. If the service and the industrial sectors are part of one and the same family, we cannot separate ourselves from one without destroying the family as a whole. Families want to stay together, not to be torn apart. If we don't stop our wrong conditioning, we will lose both, the old and the new jobs. Corporate outsourcing experts have a term for the phenomenon that the family goes together abroad. They call it network outsourcing. Fallacy number five, globalization is a great work for peace. Many people believe this. Nations that are economically connected do not shoot at one another. That's a great hope, but the new world is by no means more peaceful than the old one. What we see in Asia is uh, heavy investment in all the military budgets. China right now, and today I've read it in the Herald Tribune, is number three worldwide buying military stuff close to Great Britain right now. They have overtrumped the France and uh, today the US, British and then the Chinese military budgets are the biggest. So what we see in Asia is a lot of economic progress, economic prosperity, but they also do heavy investments in the military budgets. Um, it's not only a peaceful world which is coming up. Asia is, as you know, experiencing the rebirth of nationalism all across the continent. Much of the new wealth is flowing into the coffers of army industry. Never before has so much money been spent in Asia on new weapon systems, including nuclear warheads. So the growth rates and the tensions are high. Fallacy number six, the nation can no longer do anything for the people in its care. Both the left and the right continually say the powerlessness of the nation-state in the current age. The, they calm themselves, be patient in the long run. Globalization will create a flat world again. All nations will become market economies with political liberty for everybody. But my question is, how long is the long run? And could it be that it's too long to have any relevance for your and my life? Millions of people in Great Britain, in Germany, and all over the Western countries are members in one single party, which I call the Don't Move Party. This party appears on no ballot, never holds party convention, never sends me an invitation for a fundraiser. It doesn't send any of its politicians on the screen, and they never post a promotional video on YouTube, um, nor does they hire a pollster to investigate the opinions of farmer, housewives, and minorities, but the party's influence in the political mood is enormous. Liberal college professors, central bankers, senior economists, leftist students, corporate CEOs, presidential candidates 
of every stripe or part of this movement which wants everything to remain the same but is unwilling to pay the price to achieve that goal. I'm doing so. In doing so, the movement ignores the cardinal rule. Change is needed to preserve the status quo. No one has analyzed this much better than the Harvard historian David Landis. He has spent much of his academic life studying wealth and poverty in the world's nations. And one of his conclusions, the rise and falls of nations is not determined by climate, natural resources, military might, financial muscles, technical expertise, or even biological traits. Cultural is the decisive factor, he says, cultural in the sense of moral values and behaviors. Landis leaves us with a bitter insight. Those who hope to be the winners of the future must be able to divorce themselves from their past. So winning the future is simply a constant process of reevaluation, regrouping, and of course, destroying old institutions, old beliefs, to push away the yesterday heroes, not only in politics. I think this is the process we have to discuss about, about rethinking ourselves, about rethinking globalization. If things change, I change my opinion, John Maynard Keynes have said, but Keynes is widely ignored today. Things have changed, things are changing right now, but we have not. At the end, only four things for our to-do list. First of all, let's destroy the Don't Move Party, even if we are members of this party. Second, let's search for a third way between diehard free traders and protectionism. Trade is a question of interest and not a matter of beliefs. I advocate to bring politics back to the table. We need trade and we need trade policy, driven by national interest, not by religious beliefs. Third, education. We should give our workforce, which is not in the room right now here, and that's one of the problems of this great globalization debate, that the people who are most infected and who feel the pain are not part of this discussion, but we should give our workforce a huge upgrade to counter the inflation of workers. The unskilled people are faced in competition they never can win on their own. These people are rich, and also these societies are rich. We have a lot of oil, by the way, but the modern oil is not hidden in the ground. It's hidden in our brains, and we have to exploit it. And maybe we have to think the unthinkable to double the expenditure in all Western countries to exploit the oil in the heads of people. That could be one solution for our survival in this low-wage competition. Fourth point, we need a consumer revolution. I think if we, we have to understand that if our house looks like the storage room of the Asian export industry, we cannot expect that we leave our house in the morning uh, and that our workplace will look at the same way as before. <laughs> it will change. We, we are what we eat, that's what we have learned 20 years ago, and, and we are what we buy. Um, if we buy the washing machine without welfare state, we cannot expect producing any more washing machines with an inbuilt welfare state. So if we want to change our way of behavior, we have to start with ourselves. I think, as I said at the beginning, one politician is not enough. The consumer has an enormous power and influence, but the politicians have to bring the information to the consumers. So I have created a very simple system of red dots and green dots. Um, so we have to put on the back of every product, not only the ingredients and how many calories, but a red dot if the factory and the country where this factory is producing is not member of Kyoto Protocol, a red dot. If child labor is not banned, a red dot. If trade unions are allowed, a green dot. If not, a red dot. So to give maybe 10 um, very simple information to consumers about where the product is coming from, what are the sets of rules and regulations, and then consumers can decide. 
and we have made good experience with all organic food, markets change. Markets start changing when consumers get the information they need. Fifth, for all that, we should rethink globalization. And my positive message at the end of our little inspection is, yes, we can. Fortunately, we have Pavlov to thank for the discovery that false reflex change can be repaired. If a test animal hears the bell for an extended period of time without being fed, reflexive salivation disappears. Pavlov called it deletion. Maybe inside our political brain we have to do the same thing. Deletion could be a premise for change. We can learn it from our dogs. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Gabo, for this uh, very provocative uh, speech, uh, thought-provoking as well. Uh, I'm not sure I agree with all of what you say, but uh, let's hear from the audience. I probably should have warned you that to say you and your country is quite dangerous at LSE because we are so international that actually, uh, you know, your country means a hundred different things to, uh, to uh, people here. Uh, we will have now a question and answer session. I must inform you that this event will be recorded and made available for public consumption as a podcast on the LSE website. Yes, please. Question. Yes, gentlemen here. We will collect two or three. Yes, you first. Can we have micro, please? You need, you need to speak into the micro. If you state your name, please. Shukla. Uh, I think you've expressed the sentiment of the... Uh, of the audience. Um, globalization. Now, globalization is, is led and orchestrated by the Western corporations. If today they decide that it is not in their favor, they, will, they can stop it today. Now, globalization has led us, led to the West, the amount of cheap goods. It has also given you industrial peace because it has kept the workers quiet, because they were happy getting the cheap goods, and it has kept the industrialists and the capitalists in, in peace because they are making sufficient profits. So globalization is, is what you, you are driving globalization. Asia is not driving globalization. Okay. Now, yes, the question. question is this, that if you are suggesting a very competitive dog-eat-dog -dog world, well then, what has happened in your, in your own neighbors. How are you going to take, take completion to, to your, your neighbors? Aren't you going to take the completion to your neighbors? What will happen then? Thank you. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, we will collect like mm -hmm. yes. two or three. Uh, next one. Yes, please. Here in, in front. And then you. Uh, hello. My name is Stephen, and um, I was wondering what role you think governments like the UK and also the German government can play in combating the problems which you've outlined in your speech. Okay, thank you. Mm -hmm. Here. Yeah, I'm I'm alumni of LSE. Um, just wanted to ask, what's your idea of the thesis that um, economic development automatically creates uh, democracy? if you want to respond okay. to these three. So very briefly to give your time and possibility to, to ask more things, to make your remarks. Um, you said Western companies have uh, shaped this process. I think you are right and you are wrong. Uh, they are using the opportunities, but the, the, the great decisions came from uh, the Chinese government after the death of, of Mao, Deng Xiaoping. He was uh, maybe the most successful politician during the, our lifetime. Um, uh, and not so many people are familiar with his legacy, but Deng Xiaoping, he was the guy who decided, let's make a break, let's bring China to the world market, or in parts, parts of China to parts of our world market. Uh, India followed after the Soviet Union uh, crashed. So a lot of political uh, processes uh, were shaping our today's globalization and the Western companies, yes, they take part. Uh, and uh, you have to understand, I don't want to blame 
the Chinese and Indian and all these people who take part in this process. My book, for example, is a huge success in China because they, they feel that I understand what they are doing. Uh, I said they, they, they are doing the right thing, but what is in their interest? They are following their national interest, and that's the only thing what we should do, what is in our interest in all these um, separate sections of politics. And that's, that's my message. They, we have to follow our interests and, and not... Um, the broken records of uh, the things we have learned at school, at university 20 years ago. So the globalization is shaped not only by Western companies, but they are, they are the big winners. Yes, for, for them, the, the flat world is uh, indeed uh, in their view because they are staying in front of their offices with a big world map in their hand, a big smile on their face. They can invest nearly everywhere, wherever they want. But uh, at the same time, they have, they have um, um, raised uh, their strengths and their reach uh, while the ordinary worker uh, strengths and reach was, was shrinked. And that's the contradiction and the paradoxy of this process. Uh, second, national governments. Uh, I advocate a strong cooperation between our governments. I think the British government, the France government, the German government, they can do nothing on their own. That's right. But they have to cooperate. Um, how many people are living in the U.S. right now? 5% of world population. Europeans, we are another 5% of world population. Right now we are 10% and we are going down. So uh, I advocate bring this 10% together, pool our interests, not against other people, to pool our interest. What we have de done in NATO, in NATO we have pooled our interest, working together in Afghanistan, in a lot of places after World War II, and we have to understand that economic issues are important, maybe in our today's world for many millions of people, more important than the military issues, and we have started cooperating. Um, if we have, want to fight back, their set of rules and regulations, intellectual property rights, and we have to fight it back. That's the only thing what we have in the service uh, industry. It's what in our heads. If they copy and, and, and pay nothing, we have to fight it back. In WTO, United Nations, it's not a military fight. It's a political fight. And uh, right now, nobody is fighting this fight. We are all uh, hanging up in, in Beijing, Hank Paulson and... Mr. Bush and my chancellor and your chancellor and saying, yes, it's not okay, you harm our, our companies, but that's not enough. The Chinese are very friendly people, but they are also very hard people. They do what's in their interest, and their, their motto right now is better try than buy, better copy than, than sell any money to, to Western companies. And so I think we can do a lot, cooperation. The last question was, Cannot read whether my. economic development does not automatically ah, lead automatically. to democracy yes, and it's, rights. You can wait. Uh, that's one option. You, you have all the time to do nothing and wait. And maybe you are right, maybe not. You will see at the end of your own lifetime. Uh, I, don't, I don't think so. That globalization will lift all boats. Could be at the end of the process. The question is only how long is the end of the process, will 100 years, 50 years, and what will happen with the political power during this process? We are only talking here about the economic process, and maybe you are right, the salary goes up, and all people have more than today, but what will happen to political power? We are discussing a shift in political power and prosperity. Angela Merkel has created a world which, which I, I like much, because in, in the political arena, she says, we are not living under the conditions of win-win situations. If you have an election for parliament, there's not a win-win situation. You have winners and losers. In the political arena, we are living, that's her world, in a relative world. Politicians and the, the world of strategic politicians, decisions and political power is a relative world. If they win more political power, we are losing. So maybe the economic process is a win-win situation, which I don't believe, but in the political arena, you have to understand it's definitely not. If somebody is framing the rules and regulation, geostrategical, military power in this region, you are losing on influence, 
maybe the U.S., you can see it. They have lost influence during the last 40 years. So the political process is different to the economic process, but both processes are strongly connected. Okay, we'll take a few more uh, questions. There was one over here, and then we'll have the gentleman in the back, and you third. Uh, Mr. Steingart, you have um, advocated trade policy with uh, national interests in your speech. Um, now I see the readings of economic historians coming from the Austrian school who would say only competition is the true source of an innovative economy, an economy uh, which nowadays can provide us with the, the wealth and prosperity that, um, that maybe we all want to reach. Um, now, do you think that your approach, which basically is geared towards um, you know, protectionism in the end of the day, since um, buying a washing machine is in a world where it's about you know, the price and uh, self-interest of buying it, only will be prevented um, buying a foreign one uh, as opposed to a, a national one um, by um, basically hiking up the price through protectionism. Um, what do you say to people who just advocate, you know, competition uh, is, is, is a choice? Or do you actually advocate protectionism um, as a solution? Okay, thank you. The mm -hmm. back, let, let me respond directly because okay. it's, a, it's a great misunderstanding. We should, I think we should stop this debate about is it competition, free markets uh, uh, against the protectionism. We have to understand that nobody cares about what we believe, what, we, what you call competition. Other countries, um, what is competition? Free competition, for example, the currencies. If a big government in China has 1.3 billion people and these 1.3 billion people are fighting against Western companies not in a free market. They have a fixed currency. That means the political process makes a decision every day, every month, how to bring the currency up or down. It's a big subsidy for the export industry. And that's why the U.S. is hanging around in Beijing every two months. Hank Paulson has a big delegation, and they're trying to bring the fixed currency system, and they want to, to, to destroy it. But the Chinese people are smart. They don't destroy it. So what, what means competition in, in our today's world? I tell you what, from my, from my own history, my family and I think most of the people born in, in Berlin are strong believers in peace and happiness and, and, and all these beautiful things. And uh, then the Berlin Wall came up. Down. No, it came up. <laughs> in, my, in my lifetime, at the beginning of my lifetime, the Berlin Wall came up <laughs> uh, 300 meters from our living room. And uh, a lot of people were thinking about love, peace, and happiness. Okay, and they, they don't want to have weapons again after World War II. Uh, as you know, in Germany, nobody wants it. But then we started rethinking our theory of love, peace, and happiness, because if your neighbor has not the, the same beliefs in love, peace, and happiness, and as a result, we founded our army again, we brought all our young people to, 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 to the military, we were member of, of, the, of the NATO, and uh, today we are all inside these military organizations. The threat has changed, it's not the Soviet Union anymore, but it doesn't matter what we are believing if your neighbor doesn't believe the same. And you can put this to the economic issues. If your neighbor is not believing in Adam Smith and free trade and fair trade and is not believing in separate restrooms for men and women, not believing in uh, that child need to go to school and all these things. Um, what is free competition? 130 million children right now making a free competition to our unskilled factory workers. The unskilled factory workers of Western companies cannot survive. No chance. That's why we try to fight back child labor. It's not a moral issue. It, uh, John Edwards has put it in the presidential election campaign. It's a political issue, not a moral issue. We have to fight back child labor. Otherwise, big parts and big portions of our societies will be affected. So that's why I don't believe in free competition will solve all our problems because we don't have free competition. Can I just quickly ask you, mm -hmm. would you, would you uh, support a statement, don't buy Chinese? No. Um, I think the question of our day is, 
who will integrate whom in his system. If we don't wake up, they will integrate us in their system. That's what we have seen. We have, I've talked about the healthcare insurance in the U.S. That's a very silent process, but they integrate us in their system. No healthcare insurance. Companies are not responsible for healthcare. Companies are not responsible for that, for that, and for, for all the other social issues. And um, the question is, who is integrates whom in his system? And I say we should integrate them in our system. We have a lot of values to offer. And we have a lot of organizations to do this process. We have to educate them. And consumers here, uh, don't buy Chinese products would be, for me, too simple and too, too nationalistic. I would ask people, think about it and ask them, where is the product coming from? It's not only Chinese companies. We know this. These are German companies, British companies, American companies. And we have started this process. And all, when all these stakeholders come together, what why have you moved your jobs overseas? What is the real reason for that? Is it the market? Okay, if it's the market, why you bring back all the products? And in the Wall Street Journal, you can find all the stories that these companies are using the cheap labor, the low safety standards, the low environmental standards, and we have to ask and maybe to blame them, not only the Chinese. And we have tried to educate our companies, our CEOs, and we have to educate the Chinese government. And they will change, I'm sure. Okay, good. We'll have two more questions, please. The gentleman in the back, and then I think uh, I had you. Yes, I was wondering what role you think the declining birth rate in the West, particularly in Europe, obviously, is actually play is playing in this. Once what, again, ro what role is the declining birth rate in the West, particularly in Europe, having in, in this? I mean, is it necessary for the West to, to reverse that trend if it's going to resist this, the power shift? Okay, one more yes. question here, please. Yes, please. Uh, yes, if you, if you if, from what you're saying, essentially you could have a, a sort of axis of uh, Northern America, Western Europe, and Australasia, which are all sort of culturally and politically similar, and then the rest of the world that you know, maybe not, not doesn't fit into some of the paradigms you're talking about. Um, are the two solutions that, one, we effect proactively political and cultural change in the rest of the world, um, a la American model in Iraq and Afghanistan um, to, to a sort of bizarre extent? Or is it that if fundamentally the resources and the labor are in Africa and China and India, then you know, we are just in a, we're keeping a, a quality of life and a standard of life and a set of moral values that we fundamentally economically can't afford and won't be able to afford in the future. Now, but would mm. you mind if we take two more no, questions and then you idea. have like a, a final round? Hello, Jack. Jack, hi. Yes, uh, firstly, do you really believe that the West has a higher moral code of conduct? Um, I didn't notice much. A little much. bit louder. It's uh, for oh. me difficult yeah, to Yes, speak up, please. Yeah. Firstly, do you really believe the West has a higher moral code of conduct? I didn't notice much uh, moral guidance off the back of Western industrialization. And uh, secondly, your language is very much um, us and them. You've implied that almost China and India are a new enemy. Don't we live in a more integrated world than that? And how do you think that makes people maybe from China and India in this audience feel? Yes, question here, please. Thank you. Um, my name is Ayan, and I just happen to be from India. Um, I, call me flippant, but it seems to me that your thesis can be summarized by saying fair play works only if everyone plays fair. And you're saying not everyone plays fair. But I can't see what your solution to that is. You have just expounded five or ten fallacies but not actually answered how you would change this. You're talking about cooperation, but I completely second what that gentleman at the back has said. Your message does not come across as cooperative. You've said globalization is a divisive power, and I can see that your tone is very divisive. So I think your message, which may have some positive uh, aspects in it, might get lost in um, the way it is received. Okay. Okay. Please. Maybe, but that's part of the game. I want to, to make uh, clear. That's why I prefer tough talk, <laughs> that people understand that's, uh, uh, that's not we against them. But um, if you have 
30 minutes, and we are discussing one and a half hour about very complex issues. Um, I think you have to, to, to make it more clearer than normally a professor will do it. That uh, is part of the success in the book market. That's part of the success in talking to people to communicate in a very clear... I, I know this critics. I get it also in Germany. And you are right. Um, but otherwise, uh, um, you have an elitist uh, message which only gets 5% of the population. And my message is, let's rethink all the things. And maybe my message will disturb you. And one of the points you will not like. But you will, I'm sure, think about it. Uh, and uh, the footprint and the, the impression is, is much stronger. Even, and maybe cause, you, you don't like every single sentence. And I think uh, cooperation um, is at the end of the process. First of all, and that's the paradox, first of all I want to make sure that we understand what's in our interest for our people. And normally if I talk to politicians, for example, they understand very clearly because so, they are responsible for their voters. You are responsible for your life, for your family. Politicians are in this country responsible for people and mostly not 100%, but mostly for people in this country, in Germany and in the U.S. And uh, only at the end they, they could ask themselves, okay, is it good for the people in India and in China? Okay. But they have to fight for the interests of their people. And for that process, they have to be clear, what are these interests? And that's not uh, like in church. We are all together, and it's not like the, the, the United Nations child, what do you call it, UNICEF, the, the child organization, they prefer these religious speeches of we are all connected, we are all together. That's, that's, the world is not made like this, and political processes are not made like this. And at the end, we find a common ground, and we have to look for a common ground with all these countries. I also advocate uh, to find common ground with Iran and with all these countries. But first of all, and at the beginning, you cannot say, okay, we have to do it together. First of all, you have to understand what is your personal, your nation interest, or maybe only the interest of your factory, your family, and all this. And uh, that's a different thing. So that's why my message is maybe disturbing you, and maybe it sounds a little bit more aggressive. At the end, cooperation, yes, I, I can make it very clear in one point. In my country, the government is... Uh, has started rethinking globalization and they have started um, an initiative which is called Transatlantic uh, Economic Partnership. Uh, it's a treaty undersigned by Barroso, Angela Merkel and George Bush. And this Transatlantic Economic Partnership tries to defend our interests. For example, at our harbors. If a container ship comes from, from China, brings in stolen intellectual property to Boston. Uh, normally, okay, when they discover, okay, it's maybe machinery tools from Germany, but they are not from Germany. They are copied. They send the ship back, and the ship normally goes, tries to make the same game then in France or in Rotterdam or, or in, in Hamburg on another harbor. And now they have created a software system which gives all the information from this ship, from Boston Harbor to all the other Western harbors to have an exchange of information about these processes child labor the same. We have a lot of uh, serious investigations in a lot of countries and now we have an exchange of this information. And we use this information not to fight in a military sense, but at the next time when the prime ministers came together, G7 meeting, G8 meeting, we have a lot of meetings. We can talk about all these issues. And that's, that's how progress is made. Um, and uh, we against them. Yes, in the early morning hour of Manchester capitalism, the workers against the owners of the factory. You can say the same thing. Why, uh, Mr. Marx, he was, uh, he was arguing so hard against the owners of factory because if we don't have the owner of the factory, we will not have work for us. We are all connected. That's true. But in the early morning hour of globalization and in the early morning hour of capitalism, there were a hard struggle for interests. And we are in the early morning hour of this process. And that's where we have to define our interests. And out of this point, we can make politics. There was the question, the birth rates? The birth rates, you wanna, uh, hmm. the birth rates it's different, as you know, in the U.S. It's, it's uh, going up, not down. 
So it's uh, a lot of beliefs we have in, in Europe uh, are not, um, yeah, not unique. <laughs> in, in the U.S. they have a big immigration problem, but the birth rate is going up, not down. Uh, but for what we are talking here, cooperation between the Western countries, yes, it, it's high time to organize it right now. We are 10% of world population right now. We are going down maybe in our lifetime to 6 or 7% because our birth rate is going down and their birth rate is, is going up. And uh, you can say we and they, yes, but in all the international organizations, it has something to do with birth rate, how many people, how many votes, one man, one vote, you know this. And uh, so it's, it's for us prime time to organize our interest. Because if you are in a minority with three, five, or six percent of world population, um, your political influence will be very, very low. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Um, Again, for this most uh, provocative and thought-provoking uh, speech, I must remind you that, or it's a pleasure to remind you that this book is uh, outside uh, to buy. Gabor has kindly agreed to uh, sign it. And uh, please uh, join me in a, uh, applause for the speaker uh, again. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.